Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. Today is Sunday, August 28th. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host and joining me as always is Luke Boggs. Luke, how's it going? Oh, doing good. Excited to to be back. We have a lot to talk about. So, you know, always, always good to have a show full of adventure. Yeah, you and I have taken it pretty easy this summer, at least as it comes to Peach Pod, but uh, Democrats have been very busy this summer. Normally, things in Washington quiet down in the month of August, but this is one of the busier Augusts I can remember. So today, we're going to talk about what Democrats have been up to over this summer, uh, primarily passing the largest investment in climate policy in the history of the Congress, along with good policies on health care and taxes. And then this last week, as we're Talking here on Sunday, Biden announced that he was going to forgive up to $20,000 in student loans. That's $20,000 in student loans for people that got Pell Grants, $10,000 for other people with an income cap. Um, So we're going to talk about these things the Democrats have been up to. They've garnered a lot of criticism from the right. uh, But at least as I see it, Democrats appear pretty energized. So we're going to talk about where that's at as we get closer to the final stretch before the midterms. And then the other piece of news that's been pretty big in the last couple of weeks has been Governor Kemp has sought to quash his subpoena. He's been uh, asked to testify in the Fulton County investigation into interference in the 2020 election and the vote counting that happened after that election. Um, You know, Brian Kemp had been pretty known as somebody who who stood up for the integrity of the election and did not give in to Trump's efforts to influence the outcome. Um, so I think it's kind of notable that he has kind of pushed back on Fulton County uh, District Attorney Fonnie Willis in this instance. So we're going to talk about that too. First at the top, we'd like to note the passing of Sandra Deal. She's the wife, she's the former first lady of Georgia, the wife of former Georgia Governor Nathan Deal. Um, there was a lot of outpouring of love and support for her family, for Governor Deal and in his family and uh, all of the staff of Governor Governor Deal's administration who thought so highly of Miss Sandra. Um, She was known as somebody who uh, was really invested in the children of our state. She, as first lady, read to elementary school students in all 159 Georgia counties and was frequently on the road in Georgia engaging with kids across the state. Um, and so we want to send our thoughts and prayers to the the Deal family, to Governor Deal's former staff um, at the passing of his wife, Sandra, this week. So let's dive in here with what Democrats have been up to. And Luke, I think maybe the most notable thing actually is the announcement from President Biden this week that he was going to uh, start an effort with the Department of Education to forgive up to $20,000 in student loans. That's $20,000 for people who got Pell Grants, $10,000 for people who did not. Um, and that is only going to be, that is only going to go to people with incomes below $125,000 for single people or $250,000 for married couples. Uh, the president also announced that the payment pause that has been in place on student loans, that is going to be extended through December 31st of this year. And that is going to be the final pause. Student loan payments will resume in January of next year. And then they've got regulations in the works to make improvements to the programs that people can sign up for when they pay back their loans based on what their earnings are. Um, So that's lower payments than the standard 10-year repayment window. So all of that is in policy that is coming out from the Biden administration. Uh, He believes in his Lawyers believe that he was able to do this without an act of Congress, that he was able to do it just with regulations from the Department of Education. But Luke, I think this is most notable politically because this was a promise that Joe Biden made on the campaign trail, but it's one that he's kind of dragged his feet on. And some of the reporting I saw suggested that he thought this would be viewed as a giveaway to wealthy people if he was to forgive $10,000 in student loans Instead, I think pressure from student debt activists, pressure from his left, got him not only to forgive the 10000 but to actually double his promise for the people who got Pell Grants and forgive 20000 What do you think of this politically? Like, how important do you think it is to base Democratic voters in getting their enthusiasm up as we come up to the midterms? Politically, and you said this, but I think it's really important to reiterate, this is a promise kept. Like Joe Biden on the campaign trail made a promise to 
uh, forgive $10,000 worth of student debt, at least $10,000, how, how he always said it. And I think that is like worth marking because I think people take for granted, like, ah, oh, politicians lie all the time. Politicians don't keep their promises. And here, for all the reasons you said, Biden was hesitant. But I think politically speaking, it's really, really important when you keep a promise. And I think that is a good starting point because everything from there sort of <laughs> leads to a frustrating place for me. Because one, I don't understand why he made this promise if he seems to have been so hesitant <laughs> to actually like fulfill it. And it's one of those things where it just seemed like he had, like genuinely was like grappling with it for a long time. And I just don't understand why <laughs> you'd make the promise to begin with if you hadn't thought about it. But you know, gaffes, uh, you know, maybe it was a gaff. Maybe he, he just sort of sag on the fly and then thought about it. But the other thing too is, you know, I, I think the controversy around this decision is really illustrative of a couple uh, forces, I think, that will complicate the political outcome. First, I think the most frustrating thing is for me, as personally beneficial as this policy is for me, uh, hopefully, assuming it all works out, because uh, I know there's going to be some legal challenges and paperwork is with the federal government is never fun. But assuming everything works out, it's going to be a very personally beneficial policy for me. But the thing that I find the most frustrating is, is all these changes that he put into place does nothing to curve the cost of college, which is the whole reason why that, um, you know, we're having this discussion, the whole reason why debt forgiveness in some form, I, I think is very appropriate. And it also is, is, it's a very remedial policy. It's not focused on the future at all. Like they, I, I, and I commend them. I think it's a great thing they've been doing in forgiving people's debt who went to phony colleges, people who, you know, there's a whole bunch of categories of people before this that they have been forgiving their debts. And I think that's great. And I think they should have done that. But I, the, my frustration is that it's completely looking backwards. And like right now, UGA is starting a new semester and people are taking out a bunch of debt that they are not going to be the beneficiaries of this loan forgiveness program. And, and to me, that just seems like it's missing the big picture of that continuing problem that's not going to be solved. I think that's one big problem. I think that's part of the frustration. And the other part of it is that this does nothing to address the cycle that I, I worry our education system is in, which is everybody is told throughout their entire K through 12 education, if you want to be successful, you need to go to college. And that's not changing uh, from any of these steps. And I think that that is one of the biggest misconceptions that people who did not come up in school during the time that you and I did and why some of them are so angry about it and makes the polit politics of this so unpredictable is because so many other people in America did not come up in a time where everyone's like, you got to go to college. And so it doesn't seem... You're talking about people who are older than us? Yeah, older than us. Because I think that's what makes the politics of this so complicated why some people are so mad. Because some people are like, I can go to college and I can get all this debt and where's my money <laughs> from the government? You know, like where's my $10,000 of medical bill relief or, you know, uh, mortgage relief or anything else? And I, I think that just misses the fact that there was a, I would say, a federal policy a statewide, you know, a, a, a nationwide policy, even if it wasn't an explicit bill or explicit directive from the president of the United States or from Congress, there was definitely, definitely a national effort to get more people to go to college and to get higher education that the federal government is somewhat responsible for. And I think this is accepting that responsibility in one way, but also not doing enough to address it going forward. And so... Long-winded say way of saying, I think the politics are going to be very hard to uh, predict, except the fact that I think he's getting a lot of benefit from me and from other people for one, doing something very helpful, but two, keeping a promise because that's one of the things that frustrates me most about politicians if they make a promise and don't keep it. So I think at the end of the day, I think most people will at least fall back on, well, he made a promise and he kept it, and that's good. Yeah, I. It brings up a couple of things. I think it's, you know, the policy, particularly from the federal government's perspective, is challenging. And I'm not an expert on higher education policy, but I, as I understand it, I think the federal government has pretty limited mechanisms for controlling the costs of college and states. You know, most 
I don't know the exact numbers, but a, a good number of people go to public colleges that are public colleges in their states. So they receive taxpayer funding from state taxpayers to help fund the operations of those colleges. So the University of System of Georgia, University of Georgia, Kennesaw State, Georgia Southern, Georgia State, those are all public colleges in this state that receive funding from state taxpayers, from the Hope Scholarship Program. Um, and so I think it reflects two things. One, I think it reflects the limited amount of role that the federal government plays in higher education policy and the fact that Joe Biden probably also does not have 60 votes in Congress to do whatever the federal government can do to create incentives for states to control the cost of college in their state. So I think that's why you're in a position where you have a basically a backwards looking policy for the most part, as opposed to a forward looking policy or a pair of policies that can help people that in, incur debt over the last 10, 15, 20 years and some and forward looking policies to make that better. Um, I will say on, on Biden's behalf, there is uh, a little bit of forward-looking policy in that they are improving the uh, loan repayment programs that people can use to repay their loans based on what their income is, including giving people who have small balances, I believe the number is $12,000 or less, giving them the opportunity to have their debt forgiven in the future if their balance... Uh, after five years of payment as opposed to 10, if they have $12,000 or less in undergraduate loans. Um, so that is one piece of the puzzle that they can do. Um, but I think the other thing from the state perspective, and this to me gets into like this other question I have about a lot of the discussion around this this week was how fair is this? Is this fair to somebody who incurred debt from school and paid it off? Is it fair to somebody who never incurred debt because they never went to college? Um, is it fair to somebody who has different kinds of debt, like you mentioned, medical debt? And I think one thing that was missing from that conversation, particularly as it relates to state policy, is the fact that, particularly after the Great Recession, most states cut funding for higher education. Georgia cut their funding for higher education by 12% between 2008 and 2018. And this covers the time that we were in school. So college tuition costs went up as states reduced <laughs> and, their and the funding. And the Hope Scholarship got less generous. <laughs> the Hope Scholarship got less generous. And so more of that cost burden was placed on students. And at the same time, you know, particularly Republicans in our General Assembly cut the state income tax, which previously would have been funding that could have gone to the Board of Regents and supported our higher education, instead was sent out the door as tax cuts that largely went to wealthy people. And nobody asked the question of how fair that was. So I think that that's another piece of this puzzle around fairness that is worth considering here when you're thinking about, you know, this is a benefit for a certain class of people who had a certain kind of experience. It doesn't mean that we can't help other people who have had different kinds of experiences. But when you get to this question of fairness, I think you have to take a more holistic view of what has actually happened in policy on this over the last 20 years. Yeah, I agree. And that was the the point I was trying to make as well with the fact that everyone was encouraged to go to college at this time where they are cutting funding and making it far more expensive to go. The, you know, message from every responsible person <laughs> that I interacted with while I was in high school was like, you better go to college, man, and, you know, do do that thing and uh, get a degree and, and get into a career. And, and a lot of people listen to that message, and I'm very lucky in that I was able to complete college and go to law school and uh, have a career in that. But a lot of people didn't even finish college, and they're still paying on this debt. And I think though that population of people is especially benefited, and I think it's fair for them to receive relief. And I think it's smart that they tied this to the Pell Grant because I think that is addressing a lot of the concerns that are a little bit more universal of hitting people who don't come from wealthy families and hitting people who, even if they are making more money now, um, you know, they're, maybe their parents aren't making as much money and that, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's an opportunity to try to be a little smarter with addressing the people who this debt is hurting the most and who, if free of that debt, could do a lot more beneficial things with the money. 
um, than, you know, if you're helping some trust fund kid that somehow had, you know, some student loan debt. Yeah. And this to me is what makes the, the potential politics of this, I feel pretty optimistic about, you know, we have been going through this period where we have record high inflation. We have inflation primarily in two things in uh, gas and other energy prices and in food and groceries um, that are that are things that are hard to avoid. You know, you can't really cut back on your grocery bill all that much. You're going to absorb that additional cost. You can't cut back how much you spend on gasoline if you're commuting back and forth to work every day. And so I think that this builds into something that I think Democrats have needed to do to address this political moment, which is to answer the question of what are you doing to help us deal with higher costs. And, you know, Democrats don't have a monopoly on energy markets. They don't have a monopoly on grocery prices or all the forces around the world, supply chain issues, the war in Ukraine that have contributed to higher prices in those areas. But they do have levers to pull like this one to help cut people's costs in other places and help them absorb those higher costs on food and groceries. Um, And so that, I think, is one way in which Democrats can come back to voters in the midterm, say we made a promise, we did what we could to address high costs and how they're impacting you in this moment, and we have plans to continue to do that in this way, and Republicans don't have a plan to address this. That's why you should send us back to Washington in November. Um, And so I feel pretty optimistic about how the politics of this can help Democrats. And, you know, to me, I mean, I also saw all this criticism that like, oh, this is just like buying votes. But like the point of being in public service is to go and serve the people who put you in office to do things to help them make their lives better. And if you do that and you do that successfully and they're happy with your performance and they send you back, like that is a good uh, sort of cause and effect in our politics that should be rewarded. And it would be nice if Republicans would adopt this and have their own proposals to deal with higher costs or their own proposals to deal with other issues. I think you've seen the the parties not be in the same place on that kind of thing lately. Well, on the uh, buying votes, you know, front, uh, just like you remember when Donald Trump sent checks to everyone in America <laughs> with his name on it. <laughs> you know, so it's just like, just, you know, just just want to point that out. Like both parties have done it. But yeah, I think at the end of the day, probably my biggest frustration with this policy, despite it being you know very good for me personally and, and thinking overall it was the right thing to do is I think there is that lost opportunity that a more adept political communication shop, I think we've saw, which is Biden comes out here. He says, here's all these great things we just did. Send more Democrats to Congress and we can do more. But this is what, you know, I am limited by the, you know, the Republicans in Congress. This is as much as I can do. I would like to do more. Here's X, Y, and Z I'd like to do. Elect some Democrats and I can do those things. And because the the thing that I, I hope that this policy move doesn't turn into is you know, just Biden basically being like, I dig it. I told you I'd do it. I dig it. Uh, you know, and you can thank me for it by voting for Democrats. And I kind of worry that's where the conversation is going and where the messaging is going from it. You know, promise kept basically, you know, mission accomplished banner. And that, I don't think that's enough with this because of the fact that this is not, you know, a once in a lifetime, you know, weird thing where there's just one year where all the colleges cost way more and now it's fine, but it's just as bad and only getting worse. And so I think, you know, having that longer conversation about the fact that states need to do more to fund their school, their higher, you know, to fund their colleges and that there needs to be more thought put into this area of policy is what I really wish the conversation would be moving towards and how Democrats having more Democrats in Congress could take us there. And unfortunately we are not having that conversation and we're just having sort of a hoopla about doing it. Now, speaking of the conversation, if you were uh, paying attention to things on Twitter in the days after the announcement on student loan forgiveness, you would have seen a very different communication strategy from the white house than we've seen. Uh, You know, Joe Biden, was pretty famous on the campaign trail for being somebody who wanted to like turn down the temperature of our politics and not be disparaging of Republicans, even if uh, you disagreed with them. Um, And instead what happened 
in the hours after the announcement was you started to see complaints from people, including Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, about this big giveaway. But then you saw the White House snap back at them and start calling out individual Republicans. And the first one they called out was Marjorie Taylor Greene about how much money in uh, PPP loans, the Paycheck Protection Program loans that went out in the height of COVID, how much money in those loans that members of Congress got forgiven. I think Marjorie Taylor Greene got something like $180,000 forgiven and basically said that, like, why is it okay for wealthy people who captured a lot of benefit under the payment protection program loans that were meant to be a COVID policy? Why is it okay that these wealthy Congress people got their loans forgiven, but students who've been struggling with debt can't get their loans forgiven. And it was a surprisingly sharp and direct, uh, you know, I thought it was kind of like shit posting about Republicans that I was kind of surprised about. What did you think about that? Uh, I think response? this is why I, I keep harping on the fact that everyone encouraged our generation to go to college because I think there is actually one very, very legitimate comeback on the PPP loan discussion, which is the primary reason that those loans went out, you know, because get, get, put, put aside the graft and corruption that definitely happened in that program from lack of oversight, like the legitimate reason that that program existed is that the government told most businesses, we need you to shut down and we're going to give you some money to help you during this shutdown period. And, I, and I, so I think there is sort of a direct federal government is telling you to do something but also giving you a lifeline you know during it whereas the federal government you know like george w bush and barack obama did personally come down to my school and tell me to go to college and you know say that i should do it um but i i think that's why that that connection between what society and the government was saying we wanted people to do which is go college and the failure to build a system that supports people uh do it uh, you know I, I i think that's there's something to be said for that the other thing though that i do find really interesting about this specific conversation is the fact that you know republicans are so upset about people paying the government less money because that's effectively what they're going to do you know it's like this is a tax on everyone who went to college and got degrees and in in, in a weird way i think it's just like it's missing the point it's missing a, a big part of this conversation which is like should college be free or not <laughs> you know like that 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 is that is a that is like a question that like no one is willing to discuss uh and i think it's a really important one uh for this discussion but probably too big uh for this podcast uh but i i think that is that 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 is a underlying current in this discussion that i feel like is just like unaddressed and it's interesting I do think college should be free. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, just to, just to, just to put, put the flag the, out there. Like, yeah. yeah, I think it should be, um, because because frankly, just for like national security reasons, like the Americans are falling behind as far as how educated our population is compared to other countries, and I think you know maybe we need less bakery science degrees and we need some other uh some other harder uh, in engineering degrees out there and stuff like that and i i, I again uh, we could talk about this the entire show but i think my main frustration is just the lack of discussion of what we do now and going forward and i wish somebody be, would be willing to have that conversation um because on my way here i was listening to another podcast that like brought up a great idea which is like why is public service loan forgiveness limited to only working for the government? Why is it not uh, including professions like doctors and nurses and RNs and therapists and all these other professions that we need a lot more people to go into but aren't public jobs? And I, it's like, why are we not having that conversation? Why aren't we having conversations about making school more affordable and providing more assistance to state governments to fund education, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that's my biggest frustration. Cause even if Biden can't stroke his pen and do it, I think it would be beneficial to have that conversation while stroking the pen. Well, there, there's another one you could unspool and spend hours on. I mean, so public service loan forgiveness also applies to nonprofits. Um, but the administration of that program has been an absolute nightmare 
and which the to their credit they've been trying to, trying to, to fix up. they're yeah. trying to fix and I, and I think that's one of that that is the one part of this that i think really fits into the category of things i wish we were seeing more of is that i'm i'm very heartened that they have recognize that this program is a good idea and that it's not being run well and that it needs to be improved. And that was a bipartisan program that passed during the Bush administration. Yeah, it was George W. Bush's one of his bigger pushes. I will say on this last note, and then we'll move on for, for Biden's shit posting or whoever's running the white house Twitter account. Um, it did make a lot of lefty people on Twitter who are typically very critical of Joe Biden. It did make them very happy. And so there's probably very little value in that actually politically, but it was notable to see all these people who, you know, never go more than like a day without criticizing Joe Biden be very happy about what he's doing. Yeah. The one thing I will say on that directly is I think it is important and good messaging because frankly, all those Republicans are just being super hypocritical about that policy. I mean, it's just incredibly hypocritical. And I think that's important to point out. So the other thing that Democrats did in the last month, the thing that is actually much larger in significance in terms of policy, is pass the Inflation Reduction Act. Now this, you know, it gets a good name, very timely for people's concerns around inflation. The bill actually does not do a lot to directly address inflation in the next six I, I months. Did. Okay, next months. Okay, I was about to say I'm about to disagree with you, but yeah, it in has, next months I agree with that. It has a lot, a lot of long term investments um, that I, I think maybe you and I agree deal particularly with energy costs and with healthcare costs. But they passed in this bill called the Inflation Reduction Act. They passed the largest federal investment in climate change policy in the history of the Congress. Um, that primarily is going to be made up of subsidies, tax credits, and rebates that go to helping people adopt renewable technologies. So getting solar panels on their roofs, um, installation of wind turbines, getting heat pumps installed in your house, improving the energy efficiency of your house, um, subsidies to buy electric vehicles. That's going to be a big push in the next decade to uh, reduce our uh, use of fossil fuels, um, it also, and this summary comes from reporting from Vox, this also, this legislation also establishes the first methane fee that penalizes companies that have excess emissions of methane, and it provides funding to communities for cleaning up pollution and building their resilience against climate change. I mean, I think key in the inflation discussion related to this is that about a third of the increase in inflation in the last year has been uh, in the form of rising energy prices. And so adopting these newer renewable technologies are hopefully going to lower people's energy bills in the long run by increasing their efficiency and reducing their reliance on more volatile uh, fossil fuels uh, in favor of electricity to power uh, most of the things that they need that, that need electricity. Um, that's the climate piece. There's also significant health pieces in here. They extend more generous subsidies in the Affordable Care Act that help people who buy insurance individually help those plans be more affordable. Those are extended for a few more years. There's also drug pricing reforms that is going to allow Medicare to negotiate uh, prices on a handful of drugs with those prices going into effect starting in 2026. And over time, Medicare will be able to add the number of drugs that they negotiate on, which will hopefully lower drug prices for uh, people on Medicare in the long run. There's also a cost cap for people uh, enrolled in Medicare and how much they can, uh, how much they can be forced to pay for prescription drugs. So that also is is something in the long run that's going to help with costs on the healthcare front. Luke, this is the outcome of the long-awaited Build Back Better legislation. Um, I think progressives will bemoan that it is a lot smaller than some of the original vision that was touted by President Biden and by congressional leaders. But with a 50-50 Senate, a very narrow majority in the House, uh, Democrats again have managed to have what has turned out to be one of the most productive legislative periods, I think rivaling their majorities that they had in 2009 and 2010 in Obama's first couple of years. Um, what do you think of Democrats finally getting over the hill and getting a lot of their agenda that they campaigned on put into effect? I think it's great. And the, my, 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 the thing I wonder about this, and this is just a, a small 
thing that I'll put to the side almost immediately after. It's just like, what took him so long? <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I just, I'm, I'm very curious about that. Uh, what, cause it, to me, it seems like all of these things were in the discussion for a really long time. And, but I, I, I don't think that's the most important thing. The most important thing is here again, these are a lot of big ticket items that Biden said he was going to do, had not done yet. And then either by getting out of the way or maybe making a lot of phone calls we haven't heard about yet, got it done. And I think that's the most important thing because regardless of how involved or not he was in this process, I, you know, when you're the president and you create an environment where these you know types of deals can get done or not. And so I think the fact that there was so much trouble uh, getting here tells me that this was a difficult and fraught process and that as much as I and other people would be like, oh, we'd love to have done more. I will also say this is a hell of a lot more than I expected would realistically get done. I mean, this is a pretty robust package. The climate stuff will have a really big impact. And I think also it, it to me feels like it will be non-burgensome to get the benefits of it. And the thing that I like about it, that some progressives I think have a really misguided uh, frustration with is like, this is going to make green energy and green decisions profitable for big businesses. And I think that's really smart. That's the thing that like, if you want people to do something, give them ways to make money doing it. <laughs> because You know, just like the way that I see it is that, Climate change is, is such a big problem that, like, I don't care if you make a couple people rich off of it, <laughs> you know, off of fixing the problem. Like, that's probably what you should do because that's true. I mean, historically in America, like, that is how you get a lot of really great innovation is if you make, if you give people the opportunity to make fortunes on it because Americans love to make money. <laughs> and what I think this, this program is very smart in, in leaning into that and just being like, yeah, like this is going, we're going to make this profitable for you. And I, I, the, the thing that I think is so understated and so important, it's, it's become a meme to some people, but I, I still think it's worth repeating is like as big of a headache and political crap storm that Obama had to deal with, with Solyndra going under, which was a green energy technology that got a lot of money from the federal government. Tesla also got a lot of money from that exact same program and they're doing great. And, and, and they have done a really great job of making electric cars more viable, but they've also invested a lot into solar and uh, battery technology. And I, I kind of see this as a very similar thing, like where there's going to be some company that we probably haven't heard about yet that may not even exist yet. That's going to get started because some business guy is going to be like, man, the federal government is really leaning into this. Let's try something. And I, I think that effort from that bill is going to have long-term good effects for the country and for climate change. And I'm very happy that they made it that way. Politically speaking, I don't know how much it's going to help us because I, I started there with all that climate stuff be, to highlight the fact that it's going to take time. It's going to take time to feel all this stuff, but I think we will eventually. I think the main political benefit comes back to two things. One, keeping a promise, always good. And then two, the fact that the narrative for several weeks was, man, Biden can't really seem to do anything. And Democrats, even though they're in charge of everything, uh, don't seem to be very competent. And now we have, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is going to help a lot of people immediately in, on some healthcare things, long-term do some really good things on climate change, and have the student loan thing. And I think the critical takeaway for me is that the execution on all these things has to be really good because I don't think it's going to affect the midterms probably besides just the promise kept good vibes. Democrats seem like they can do things for some, I think there, there's a contingent of younger democratic voters, especially that this combination of things will be like, yeah, you know what? It's worth it. It's worth it for me to take the time and show up and vote that like maybe they, a lot of people weren't feeling it. Um, cause I mean, even me personally, as someone who's very politically engaged and you know, I'd be surprised if I miss an election now between when I'm dead, uh, like I was going to vote, but like now I'm definitely more happy about it and very, you know, feel like, Oh yeah, you know, like these guys can get some things done. And you know, that makes me feel better about it. It makes me, 
it makes me more motivated. And so I'm sure there's other people who are having that same experience of just being like, yeah, well, they can do it. Yeah, they can get it done. So, you know, it's worth the time and effort to, to make sure I vote. And I'm, I'm hopeful that'll be true for others too. Yeah, I mean, it is a pretty direct contrast. You know, Mitch McConnell made a decision that, you know, one of the, the places where Republicans can gain the most ground, and now it looks like that they're struggling to gain ground, is their uh, opportunity to take back the Senate. And Mitch McConnell made a decision to not put forward a sort of contract with America style policy vision for what Republicans would do if they take back the Senate. I mean, instead, you have a deeply unpopular one that was put out by Florida Senator Rick Scott, who's the leader of their uh, group that is seeking to secure a Republican Senate majority that includes like cutting Medicare, cutting Social Security, like tons of poor people more. (laughs) Yeah, like tons of very like very unpopular things. I can't even believe he actually put that together. And yeah, then, I think he may have like wreck a focus group backwards or something that he accidentally picked the most unpopular ones, you know? <laughs> and then he, he's a trip too. He's a guy who, uh, um, was the subject of a, some sort of Medicare fraud investigation in Florida when he was the CEO, I believe of like some kind of health system or something like that. And then he was, uh, issuing his criticisms of the student debt forgiveness from a yacht somewhere in Italy while he was complaining about, uh, very relatable. Yeah. People who got Pell grants getting $20,000 in forgiveness and he's on his Italian yacht. So (laughs) he's, he's a bit of a trip, but we know how Florida has gotten these days. Um, No, I think that in particular, the ways in which both the student loan forgiveness and the investments in climate change, the opportunity that that has to activate young people, young progressive people who may have otherwise been pretty disappointed with how things have gone in two years of democratic control. I think that is actually really key for the midterms, given that both if you can up enthusiasm among that group and if you can what Democrats are increasingly doing, which is relying on more highly educated voters in the suburbs of large cities who actually are more likely to vote in off-year elections and midterm elections. Um, And so some of that, what I think has been a traditional Republican advantage um, that was made up of like seniors who never miss an election and more highly educated people who are a little more tuned in and vote, that midterm advantage may erode a little bit for Republicans. And then if you activate young people on top of that, I think it does give Democrats a fighting chance politically. Um, So that leaves me with all of the action that we've seen, because you have these two things. You did have a bipartisan agreement on the slightest of regulations on guns that was paired with increased spending in mental health following the elementary school shooting in Texas. Um, You had a big uh, domestic manufacturing bill that passed on a bipartisan basis. So you have Joe Biden, who in the primaries was basically ridiculed by progressive Democrats for saying that he could come to Washington and he could get things done on a bipartisan basis. You actually have several examples of where he's actually done that. And I think that that, I think, solidifies his argument for why he you know, should have won that presidential election. And he did. Um, And you have successes that Democrats can point to and say, if you send us back to Washington, we can do more. And I think that is a much better position to be in than Democrats were in a few months ago when the story was, like you said, they've had control for a year and a half and have basically done nothing except the COVID rescue. Um, So I, I think, you know, I'm somewhat optimistic about Democrats chances. I think we're in pretty good shape to keep the Senate. Um, and I think the house is looking surprisingly competitive in a way that a year ago, or, you know, even more recently after the, the last round of redistricting was done, the idea that Democrats would have a chance to keep the house to me seemed laughable at the time. And now like there might be an outside shot that could do it. Yeah. I, I would consider that a real outside shot. I, I think, Democrats are going to lose the House, but I, I, I think the Senate conversation is only as positive as it is because of the really terrible candidates that Donald Trump saddled the Republican Party with. Um, I think these recent successes definitely bolster that and sort of highlight that, yeah, you know, it does matter who's there because some real deals actually can get done. And, and I, I think on a, you know, candidate by candidate basis, people making 
those decisions in the aggregate is going to be good for Democrats on the Senate level just because of how bad some of those Senate candidates are. And I, I, you know, definitely all these things help. I just don't think it would have been enough. I think the fact that those candidates are that bad um, is what is making the Senate Senate as competitive uh, as it is. But just a quick note on the House side, um, earlier this summer in June, the 538 model had Republicans with an 88% chance to keep the House, and that's now dropped to 78. So still a long shot, but you know, it's not a it's not a Hail Mary attempt. There's there's a real path there, potentially. So let's switch our focus to the, the state level here a little bit. And one of the most interesting stories that I've seen in the last couple of weeks has been Governor Kemp's efforts to quash a subpoena that he testify uh, before the grand jury that's been organized by the Fulton County District Attorney in her investigation into efforts to interfere with the 2020 election and the, and the vote counting and vote certification that happened after that election was done. Uh, previously, you know, previous reporting suggested that Governor Kemp had been, had a pretty friendly relationship with the, the effort, the investigative efforts here. Um, people actually thought that he testified in a private session earlier this summer. And then in the last couple of weeks, it's come out that the relationship between Governor Kemp and his attorneys and the attorneys, uh, that are helping run that grand jury in Fulton County, that that relationship has really soured. And Governor Kemp has now made formal motions in court to try to stop him from being required to testify before that grand jury, uh, at least before the 2022 election. And he, he cites, you know, the potential for political interference as kind of one of the reasons that he thinks he should not have to testify. And, and while I was editing this podcast, a judge did rule that Governor Kemp would be required to testify before the special purpose grand jury, but that he would be allowed to testify after the 2022 elections. And Luke, I'll give you the opportunity to, to get into some of the legal, uh, stuff there if you want to, but, but I, I was just surprised that he has had, you know, him and Brad Raffensperger have kind of stood out as being willing to uh, focus their personal narratives on what they did to stop Trump from interfering in the vote counting following the 2020 election. And so this to me felt like a bit of a flip of that position. Um, And I I was a bit confused as to why, but what what do you think about how this has developed, Luke? Well, one thing I thought that was really important from the reporting on Kemp's testimonies, it seems like one of his principal concerns was if the testimony was going to be recorded either with video or audio. And the fact they also have brought up the fact that they don't like the fact that this is this testimony is going to happen so close to an election. To me, it seems like that is transmitting that their primary concern is that he's going to say something that is going to be bad politically for him. And what that is, is really hard to know, but uh, like it, it does seem to me that they have primarily been making political arguments. And I think they had a good relationship with the DA's office that, you know, didn't go as far as they wanted it to either with getting it, you know, have doing this testimony without it being recorded or doing it after the election. And that seems to me to be the primary reason why they are, you know, making moves to quash the subpoena. Uh, and the arguments that he's making aren't super interesting to me. I don't think they're that strong. I think this is more of a delaying tactic than anything because Kemp has not been hesitant to voice what Donald Trump talked to him about and his opposition to Trump's attempts to overturn the election in Georgia in the past. Uh, Raffensperger obviously has been a lot more vocal about that, but I mean, you know, Kemp, Kemp has talked about it. And so I, I think to me, he's got a concern politically and he's been pre his team has been pretty transparent that that is their, their concern. And I think they're bringing up these other arguments in a attempt to buy time because the, the other side of it is 
from everything I've seen, from everything I've read, from everybody I've talked to, nobody can comprehend anything that Kemp would be in trouble for, uh, legally speaking, in this situation, since everything, you know, points to him upholding his legal duties, but also his, like, political and, you know, patriot duties of, like, not letting someone steal an election, like, he did the right thing here. I mean, even um, the district attorney said, right, that they he's a consider victim. him a victim, yeah. <laughs> right, so it's like, he's a victim of a crime, and I don't think that has changed, and I don't think, you know, Kemp is in any jeopardy in that sense, and so the only real reason I can think of of why he wouldn't be willing to talk to them now when he seemed to be willing to talk to them earlier is just the political aspect of it. And I think that Kemp is worried that he's going to testify and, and it will leak in some way of him saying bad things about Donald Trump that would anger the conservative base and maybe have some people skip him while they're voting for, you know, all the loyal Trumpers or he's worried about something you know uh, that he did that would upset some moderate voters who give him points like in the same way they're giving brad raffensperger points for uh standing up to trump maybe he's worried about that i lean towards it more likely being something that's going to upset the trump maga base than conservative or the more moderate voters but that that's the only thing that makes any sense to me well and do you think that that's actually bad politics for him, um, given, you know, his, the, the Trump back challenge to governor Kemp in the primary failed miserably. David Perdue failed miserably in that attempt. And one of Stacey Abrams criticisms of Brian Kemp has been that she is astonished that he gets so much credit for doing what she would say is the bare minimum of not committing treason. Um, but if he was recorded and it leaked, uh, his testimony to the grand jury where he described, you know, I guess what we would anticipate to be pressure from Trump and his legal team to overturn the election. And he gets to retell the story again about how he stood strong against that pressure. Um, isn't that to me, that just seems like it would be good politics for him and it would be good in the same way that it's been good for Brad Raffensperger. And if you look at the polling, Brad Raffensperger has benefited tremendously from having that, uh, from having people view him in that light, given he has the largest lead in polling of any statewide Republican on the ballot. You think that's, you know, you think that would not be good politics for Brian Kemp? At the highest level, I think it would be bad politics for Brian Kemp. And there's a couple reasons for that. One, I think Brad Raffensperger is not as, generally distasteful to moderate left voters as Brian Kemp is. Brian Kemp is very purposely comes off as a far more conservative person and probably is a far more conservative person than Brad Raffensperger is. And I think the job of secretary of state is one in which that for the most part, Brad Raffensperger has treated as a technocrat. I'm here to make the, Secretary of State business registration website run well and elections run well. And for the most part, with the exception of him supporting voter suppression bills, like elections run smoother in Georgia since Brad Raffensperger has been the Secretary of State. Like that is just a fact. Like I have seen shorter lines. I have heard about shorter lines. It just seems to work better. Like at the end of the day, that 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 has been my takeaway of his tenure. Um, and so I think for those reasons, there's a lot of people who'd be like, yeah, Brad's been fine. I have no problem with him. Uh, and him standing up to Trump, I think people want to reward with that. I think the, and, and on the other hand too, I think people are, Republicans are more likely to want to not let B. Wynn get in there. Uh, whereas with Brian, I think there's a conservative voter element that probably feels a lot more betrayed by him of not being a Trump sycophant because he very much ran on a I'm super conservative and I'm a, you know, base Republican politician and I'm going to do what the base wants me to do. And most of the time that's what he does. And so I think him just like really putting it out there that like Donald Trump was telling me to do something that I thought and I know is illegal and really implicating Trump in criminal activity, which is effectively what he'd be doing. I'm sure he wouldn't phrase it that way, but like he 
I'm sure there's just some quote that would make him very worried that some Republicans are going to stay home against him because Trump just has so much antipathy really directed towards him. Because, like, Trump always mentioned Raffensperger, but, like, it's Kemp who he's really, really been mad at. And so I think if you reignite that flame in people, I think he's worried that that would hurt him. And I don't think there's nearly as many moderate voters who are like, oh, yeah, Brian's fine. You know, like, there's a lot more people who I think lean towards Stacey because they like Stacey and have legitimate complaints about Kemp and other areas besides the election that the election stuff won't be enough to overcome. Because if you are a moderate voter who's really worried about the abortion decision, well, Brad Raffensperger has absolutely nothing to do with that. Like, would he have voted for it if he was in the legislature? Yeah, he would have voted for it. But like, he's running the Secretary of State's website and running elections. That's irrelevant. Abortion, very relevant to potential Kemper Abrams voters. And I just don't think that all the issues that you deal with when you're running for governor, I don't think reminding people that you stood up against Trump is going to be enough to push him over the top. Uh, because frankly, it's like a lot more relevant to Raffensperger's job because he is the guy who, you know, runs elections. Uh, whereas it's not as relevant to Kemp for a myriad of reasons. All right. Well, I think we are going to leave it there for today. Uh, Labor Day, Luke, is the sort of formerly traditional kickoff of midterm season. That deadline doesn't feel as important now as it used to. Things are definitely fired up, but uh, we are getting close. We're going to have uh, just a couple of months left and maybe a surprisingly close election to cover. Um, so we'll be here to talk about it. But Yeah, Luke, well, the one thing I will say on that that I wanted to point out is it is interesting that Labor Day kickoff because – in 20, 2014 kind of looked like it looks now that it could have been a competitive cycle and then the floor kind of fell out from under Democrats. So that's that's probably the main thing I'm, I'm watching in these last couple months is all these recent wins for Democrats. Is that the beginning of a trend of this thing being closer or is it sort of a last gasp before the fall the, the floor falls out on us? And ho hopefully that's not what happens this time. But I, I, I'm I'm still I'm still worried about that. And I'm optimistic, but uh, but we shall see. Uh, but Hopelessly Luke, optimistic, as is tradition. Yes. Uh, Luke, thank you as always for joining the podcast. Happy to be here. Happy to have good things to talk about for once. Alrighty, we'll talk to y'all later. Go dogs. Go dogs. And poor Nebraska. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.